Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 58 and today I have with me Sean Arendt. Hey Sean. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good mate, I'm good. So as I was just introducing, this is, I can't believe it, it's the 58th um, podcast that I've created. Also I should have mentioned that this podcast is uh, sponsored by Healthspan Elite, who, who I shall talk about at the end of the podcast. Um, so listen, Sean, you and I uh, know each other. Um, I saw you only a few weeks ago out in Austin, Texas, of course, at the ISSN annual conference. And we're both on the ISSN advisory board. Um, and we've got a few other similarities, which we'll get into on this podcast. But for the folks that don't, um, don't know yet who you are, um, perhaps, because uh, <laughs> you'll be infamous by the end of this, Sean, um, you have a habit of doing that, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, so um, if you could just tell us, uh, you know, uh, who you are, um, where you're based, and um, you know your your current and or um, m- you know sort of biggest research interests. Sure. So I'm a professor at Rutgers University. Uh, it's the State University of New Jersey in America. Um, I'm the director of the Center for Health and Human Performance there, and the director of our graduate program. And starting last year, I also started working as the head exercise physiologist for the New Jersey Devils of the National Hockey League. Uh, So I work with ice hockey. I've been on the national staff for U.S. soccer since 1999. Um, So I've been working quite a bit with their coaching education schools in particular. Um, uh, That's, you know, those are the, the, the main things I'm doing now. In terms of my research, my background is exercise endocrinology. So much of what I do revolves around stress. Um, but I look at it in a number of different ways. Everything from exercise as a stressor, um, exercise to relieve stress, but then also how to buffer the stress of exercise. And that's where a lot of our uh, sport nutrition work comes in, uh, especially when it comes to recovery. Uh, we've done, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but we do quite a bit on the technology side of training to monitor training load and things like that, because I do work very, very closely with a number of the teams here at Rutgers. Uh, and we are lucky at Rutgers, at least I am from the standpoint of, of my situation, because uh, we, you know, we are one of the upper tier research universities, but at the same time, we're a member of the Big Ten, which for the UK listeners that don't know, is one of the most major conferences in the National Collegiate Athletic Association here in the US. So, so we have some pretty good athletes to choose from when we do some of our testing as well. Yes, no, thank you, and, and that's awesome. Um, I mean, I myself lived in the States for 10 years, so I have a, uh, although I was at the other end of the country, of course, uh, down, in, uh, down in the Southwest, um, but it, I did find it interesting um, how certain sports that are, that are particularly well-known in the UK, like rugby, for example, so I was playing um, rugby um, in the Southwest, which is... Um, uh, I, uh, you know, down in that neck of the woods, I can see why guys need to wear helmets and pads because down in the southwest, the ground is so friggin' hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, it doesn't rain, of course, so, uh, so that's pretty nasty. Um, but um, the emergence of soccer, I, I, you know, has become really is phenomenal. And of course, we, everyone pretty much knows David Beckham, of course, and he, right. he was... Um, Obviously, one of our uh, one of our big names for, for for soccer or for football. I know a lot of Brits are going. What the hell are you calling it soccer for? Um, but because <laughs> this is an international podcast, I think we better right. speak uh, uh, rather than Americanese or Englishese or whatever that is. We'll we'll, we'll do some um, some uh, um, international English here. Um, yeah, but um, he obviously played and captained LA Galaxy for some time and. 
you know, I see some really big things happening with women's soccer. Um, and as I say this, of course, uh, uh, England women's uh, soccer team um, are enjoying uh, some success, which is, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Heartbreaker yesterday. That was a tough one. I know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for, 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 because we're not recording audio, um, listeners are, are missing out on the fact that I can see you crying heavily at this point. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, no, but it is, you know, it is interesting how in the U.S. certain sports, I mean, it's a hard market to break, you know, with your uh, American football, um, baseball, um, and uh, basketball, of course, being, you know, the big three, Um, but now seeing some of these other sports. So the, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because with that, we've also got not only this increase in in sports, but we've also got... Um, not just a growth in participation, but also a growth in the levels of support to these these athletes, we'll call them. Um, and at the level that you work and I work in particular, which is either at the national or international, or certainly at the elite or professional level, um, it becomes a, a much more interesting uh, area to be in. And that's really what I wanted to get into in this podcast, was this this angle of um, what I've been calling um, evidence-informed practice. Um, and, and this comes from, we, we've done a number of podcasts about, well, we've done a lot of rocket science stuff, a lot of mechanistic discussions with, um, uh, and it's very cool because those discussions have been with the, um, the authors themselves, usually the researchers that have produced those papers. And we've talked with a number of practitioners. But one area um, that we've focused quite a bit on is this, this importance of, of looking for evidence and where does that evidence come from and critical thinking and all that stuff and the pitfalls that practitioners find themselves in um, when um, they're not necessarily learning how to, to read that research and differentiate between uh, research that, that is purely mechanistic but isn't necessarily what we should use to inform our own practice. So what I do in my lab at Guru Performance is I do my own lab tests. I'm very lucky. I've got um, much of the same kit that you'll be playing with, whether it's metabolic testing, body composition from skin folds to DEXA. Um, we can also, through blood or through salivary uh, diagnostics, test for things like secretory, IgA, cortisol and testosterone and all that stuff. So those are the things I want to get into because in the same way that, that we wouldn't expect a dentist to suddenly start operating on our mouths, without doing some form of testing and assessment, we shouldn't really be expecting um, um, the best possible outcomes for our elite level athletes if we're not testing to identify where their strengths and weaknesses are, establish baselines and all that stuff that we, that we can sort of delve into and get into and maybe talk about some of the, uh, some of the tests that, that you think, and, and I'll throw in my two cents as to what I think has been useful in the various sports that we've worked in. Um, so let's bring it back to you then, um, because you have mentioned that, you know, amongst other things, you're a um, laboratory director at Rutgers, and you do work with elite athletes like soccer. If we, if we just sort of go into that bit first, in a nutshell, why do you feel that it's important that, that um, we do incorporate... Um, lab testing in, in a practice setting? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the, general, the general model I follow is if you're not assessing, you're guessing. 
you know, and, and I think for too long, you know, and it's interesting, you know, and I can approach this from an athlete standpoint because I did play, you know, and so I, I get that side of it and you're around coaches long enough. And I think one of the things I absolutely love about sport, and I think, you know, your involvement in rugby, you can appreciate this tremendously is the tradition. I mean, there's one of the beauties of sport is the tradition that goes with it. The problem is that tradition gets in the way when it comes to progress at times too. Yeah. You know, and I think that what I'm finding is, you know, in the exercise science world, in kinesiology, we know just so much more than we did just 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, it's just an abundance of information that we've come across. But yet some of the methods of training athletes have still stayed that 10 or 20 years behind, you know, and, and I think that when when you can provide testing that has meaning to the sport, so you can actually show the coaches and athletes where this translates to on the field performance, keeping them injury free, you know, physical and mental recovery and all these things. When you start to see the product, I think that, you know, it's almost ridiculous not to assess. It's, you know, it's stupid not to test. And I think where we run into problems or where we have in the past and not so much, you know, currently, but you get a lot of coaches that'll put their head in the sand, you know, and it's almost one of those things that, Hey, if you don't test my athletes, I don't have to know that I'm not doing something right. So I don't have to worry about that, you know, and they just kind of keep going with what they've always done. And, and I think it's the more progressive coaches and the athletes that really want to extend their careers and get the most out of it that really buy into testing very, very quickly. And I've been, you know, and, and I think compared to some of the things I've heard from colleagues of mine at other universities and with other teams, um, I admit that I think I've been very blessed to work around some coaches and programs here that want to be progressive and don't just go with what they've always done. At times, that was a that was a real teaching process, you know. And I, I think as a researcher, you if you really want to be a part of this application process, because I, I firmly believe in that. You know, you're talking about mechanisms, and there's various different levels of mechanistic work. Everything from the cellular to more of the systemic. You know, and a lot of what I do is systemic mechanistic research. But ultimately, if I can put that into terms that a coach and an athlete can understand, then I really know my field. You know, and I think what you get sometimes is these the researchers that talk above the coach's head and above the athlete. And they just they tune it out and they don't want a part of it because it's just strange and foreign to them. When you can put it into terms where like this is this is what I can offer. What do you need? What do you need from me? to really move your team forward. And I think when you work and you make it a um, kind of a team effort where, where they have input and you provide rationale, I really think that's where it works the best. So I just don't see a reason anymore to not incorporate science into training. Uh, and it's actually funny because at the upcoming National Strength and Conditioning Association Conference, the talk I was invited to give is on this. It's the role of the Human Performance Lab in college athletics. You know, what is the future of this? Because more and more programs are trying to go that way. I just think that the more expertise you have behind it and the more you can speak the athlete's language, the better you're going to be. And I think that's probably part of the reason why you've been successful at what you have is you have the science knowledge, but you can talk like an athlete. You know, and I think they greatly appreciate that because, you know, a lot of times you'll get the, you know, scientists or, or even nutritionists will do this sometimes where they don't really understand what the demands are that an athlete is going through. And I think when you can appreciate that from an athlete level, you get instant credibility. And I think they understand why you're saying this is why we're testing. 
You know, and I think one of the hardest things to resist as a researcher is, you know, you have so many tests to choose from, right? I mean, there's so many things you can do. And, and I think sometimes you really have to learn to distinguish the ideal from the real. You know, hey, yeah, we could do these 30 things. And they're looking at you like, man, I don't have 10 days to do this. You're like, okay, let's do these three. Yeah. You know, and, and you just, you have to learn to scale it back and really hit on what's the most important thing for the athletes you're working with. Yeah. Awesome. I'm, I'm getting really excited here because this is, <laughs> this is exactly why I do what I do. Uh, and there's loads of little, uh, there's loads of little gems that I'm going to pick into. Um, I, I did a podcast recently on um, the importance of communication. Yeah. And that is roughly what you're alluding to there and, and there's different angles there of course and you're absolutely right there's no point walking in to the locker room with your you know rugby players or football players or hockey players or whatever with your you know your lab coat on speaking rocket science at these guys that you know they're just going to say shut up geek tell me what to do okay right um you, you can go it can backfire on you because because it's so unfamiliar to them um, they just can't see the point of it. And that, that is what I have found with the coaches, the powers that be within the club don't always see the value of sports science because they don't understand the value. Um, and I know of a, a couple of um, sports scientists who are also practitioners, uh, like Dr. James Morton, for example, who's with Liverpool um, uh, FC. Um, one way that he managed to uh, bridge that gap with um, sort of senior management, if you like, was to actually help one of one of the senior management um, get in shape and lose some weight. And it, and it, th- he managed to find a way of getting buy-in. And I think I think for me, the most profound experience I have in 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 what led me to develop our lab, at Guru Performance, was we don't always need the level of technology that we're using. I don't always need to perform all the tests that I do. But what I do get is a client who loves the experience. Right. But more importantly, I get buy-in. And I get that, I get that belief in what we're doing because I've bothered to test and assess them. And, and that belief is what helps them when I'm not with them. Like in nutrition, of course, um, they have to go away and implement this stuff day in and day out, and usually you're not there, and they're surrounded by a lot of temptation and issues and problems, but knowing that what they're doing, there's a reason for it, and knowing, more importantly, I guess, that you're going to go back and, you know, pinch their skin folds or shove them under the decks or take some blood. It's a hugely powerful um, way of, of, I don't think enforcing one's intervention, but, but ensuring... Um, that your um, your client or your clients or your team is more likely to do what you need them to do is is for me is a is, is probably the most powerful part of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, one of the things that I really like, and, and I think probably one of the areas where I got the most buy-in from coaches and management working with pro teams as well, is this idea that if you use objective measures, you can't fake that. You know, it, it's not a placebo effect. It's not even, it's, it's literally, it's not that they can just gut through it. You actually get objective criteria. And I can tell you now, did they do what they were supposed to do in the off season? And I think where we get the, the best response, and I think the, the message I try to give, especially to the coaches, is if you work with me on this, I can tell you not just what's not going right. In other words, the things you could do better, but I can tell you what you're doing that's working too. 
So now you can structure more of your training and your recovery plan around what has worked and is producing these positive changes and modify the things that aren't working quite as well. You know, uh, with some of the teams, we one of my big things that, that I, the reason I love testing is identifying deficiencies, you know, because it's human nature that we like to do what we're good at. So what you get a lot of athletes doing is they keep training at the things they're good at. And what they never really focus on are the things they need to bring up to make them really a great athlete. And I think when you can provide them the data and say, here's where you're, you're good, you know, and we need to keep doing this. Here's where you're average or below average. And here's what we can do to bring it up. And I do think one of the most critical components, I don't think anybody has any business doing testing uh, providing input on what's wrong if they can't provide advice on how to fix it. Yeah, you know, and I think that's where we go wrong a lot of times. It's like, well, no, this isn't good enough. But if you don't know how to fix it, it's kind of like watching a strength coach who tells somebody that their form is wrong, but can't explain to them how to fix it. At that point, you almost are better off letting it go. Yeah. You know, so I think you have an obligation to have an understanding of, of how things get applied because. You know, for me, for example, and, and you know this with some of the sports I know you work with, you have to deal with this quite a bit. But, you know, when I'm working with college soccer, for example, it's an intense season. We start in August. We're done by mid to late November in most cases, you know, depending on if we make a run to the college cup or not. But you're talking about playing twice a week. And on the women's side, it's usually Friday, Sunday. You don't have full off weeks. And so there's things that maybe we would love to do to incorporate throughout the season that you literally don't have time to do. And you also have to step back as a scientist and go, man, if it was up to me, ideally you would do A, B, and C. And the coach is like, yeah, but from my perspective, our players still need D, E, and F. How do I fit those in? And so you have to realize that what I try to do that I think has allowed us to have these good relationships with our players and our teams is to give them my impression of ideally, here's what I would do. What can you do realistically? What do you have the capacity to fit into your training? When can you give them off days? Okay, that's what you're working with. Great. Let's work with that. Then now here's my ideal. You know, and I think that as a, as a scientist, and this is where that evidence-based practice comes in, is you know, the prescription side of it is such an art and a science. You know, we want to use the science as much as possible, and that's where we derive our data, and that's where we use the research that we do and others do to guide the recommendations we make. But you also have to know the players you're working with and realize that it won't work for everybody and be willing to make modifications. And, and again, this is why not just testing but constant monitoring. We use heart rate systems continuously in, in the players that we work with. Because that gives me my day-to-day -day training load measure, too. That gives me recovery input. And so now we can literally adjust from day-to-day -day rather than from test to test. You know, because it could be months between tests. Well, by the time you see, oh, crap, you didn't improve like we thought you would, well, what could you have done in between to make sure it happened? You know, so I think it's the, it's the scheduled assessment with testing and the regular assessment with monitoring that really provides you the best of both worlds to make sure that your athletes are progressing year-round. Yeah, there, again, there's a lot more in there. I've got a feeling this could be a 10-hour podcast, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> you better, let's, hit some, let's hit some caffeine and go for it. Um, 
Yeah, I, I just to go back to an earlier point, you know, uh, and we need the scientists that do the mechanistic stuff, the stuff in the labs, yes. because that's how we understand uh, how to use our tools. If we if we can accept that these are tools of our trade um, and there's a right time and a wrong time to use these tools. And like you say, you've got to be careful about throwing um, a wrench into a situation when it's not even needed. It just confuses the issue. In fact, it's, it's, it's distracting and it's time-wasting, so you do need to know. But you can get into a situation where you spend too much time being an expert at the expense of developing your expertise. Yes. And, and, and that is a fine line. It obviously takes a while. Like in my case, for example, I mean, I've had quite a long career, <laughs> a lot of it, has been in the trenches, um, not necessarily even knowing what I was doing, and then I got myself re-educated. Um, but recently, uh, I'm, I'm a physiologist now, but um, uh, and a nutritionist. But recently, I or last year, I did a, a postgraduate program in strength and conditioning um, to enhance my knowledge in strength and conditioning. Not because I, I haven't got any interest in being a strength and conditioning coach, but I provide a lot of programs that support strength and conditioning um, interventions and therefore I felt well if I don't understand the latest in strength and conditioning how can I know what I'm supposed to be doing in terms of nutrition and or testing um, and that I, I think is another thing that we should maybe get into a bit in a bit uh, since you're also an educator is maybe what some of the requirements are to get into this sort of thing. Um, so let's, ju let's just bring that conversation back to, to nearer to where you uh, had left off, there are um, many testing options available. Um, some are going to be more important than others. And of course, you made a very important point that you don't just test, you also need to test and reevaluate. Um, each test becomes a baseline with which you can, you can determine whether or not your interventions are successful or not. And that's why I like evidence-informed practice, because you're not just using the test, you need to use common sense, like, like your previous comment of, um, you know, you, you could do any test, um, but it isn't always useful. So you do need to, that's right. you, and that's why you need to know um, more about what they're doing, what their training needs are, and, and so on. But if we can sort of be slightly generic, if it is possible, what are the things that you think are most important for most sports? You know, I think, um, you know, kind of just before answering that question, I think it's interesting you brought up uh, going back and studying strength and conditioning because yeah. you, you're hitting on something that I find to be critical, which is you need to have, in order to pick these tests that we're about to talk about, you need to understand the sport. In other words, you need to understand the physical demands. They're going to, what are the bioenergetics? What are the recovery needs? What's a typical schedule like? What does the intensity of a match typically look like for different sports? What kind of breaks do they have? So I think you have to, and, and you have to have a biomechanical analysis. You at least have to have a, a rudimentary understanding of what the movement patterns are. So you identify where do most common injuries occur? You know, where, where could we get the most bang for our buck in terms of producing strength and power in certain segments that will really produce the most, the most effect. So, so I think that is a huge point that you made in terms of the educational process, because I don't always see it done in reverse where then the strength and conditioning coaches get the education they need to keep up on the science, to use it in what they do. Yeah. And I think some of them almost shun it because they don't have that background and they're almost afraid to admit that. 
we'll get into that later because that's been a fun part of what I deal with. Um, and my background is strength and conditioning. I was a strength and conditioning coach when I finished up in college before I went back to grad school. So, you know, all of this becomes important for me with testing. Most of the sports I work with are power endurance sports, you know, so, and, and you know, everybody thinks soccer is an endurance sport. It's not, it's a power endurance sport, ice hockey, still power endurance, but even a little more power based based on what they do. Field hockey, again, another power endurance sport, but even shorter distances than what the typical soccer player covers. So you need to have greater speed over a shorter, shorter time frame. So I think that, you know, for us, we almost all the sports we work with, we do VO2 max testing, you know, to get aerobic capacity, but it's not the VO2 max that's important to me. What we do in the capacity of running that is typically either ventilatory or lactate threshold, depending on the time frame. If we have a lot of athletes to get through, like an entire team, we'll usually rely on ventilatory threshold because I can already take the gas exchange data to do that. If I'm working with more of a runner, um, you know, for example, we've tested Michelle in our lab. You know, she gets ready for her marathons and stuff. We'll do lactate threshold testing to get a much better idea of the pace that she can handle for that training and stuff like that. But I think that, um, you know, we'll rely on that body composition is an absolute necessity in my mind. And if for no other reason, not necessarily to tell an athlete whether they're fat or not, but to track lean mass changes throughout a season, are you breaking down or are you maintaining your muscle structure? That's, that's an important consideration. Um, vertical jump is a common one for us just because it is such a, 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 a direct, but easy measure of power. And with all the sports I work with, vertical jump is the one test that consistently through research has been found to correlate to performance very, very well and predict placings. And we found that in our own research that we've done as well. We've got a couple articles we're working on now based on that. And then especially for, for sports like field hockey and for hockey and ice hockey, um, we rely pretty heavily on Wingate testing. You know, and, and Wingate testing is one of my favorites because I'm much more of an anaerobic type of person anyway. But I mean, it, it's 30 seconds of hell. But I'll tell you what, the translation of that to kind of the high speed and, and anaerobic performance is so critical. And what we've actually done with the Wingate is we've modified it for some of the sports we work with. Where what we'll do is we'll do repeated Wingate testing. So, for example, in ice hockey, their shifts are typically 30 to 45 seconds. Wow, sounds a lot like a Wingate test. But then they get a minute, minute and a half rest, and then they got to do it again. So what we'll do is we'll do repeated wind gates to actually see what their lactate accumulation looks like, but also what's your repeatable power. Are you as good in your third or fourth shift as you were in your first shift? And that gives us some real ideas of where we can modify training with interval-based work and things like that. So those are the main ones we rely on. We also do a lot of blood work. We're getting ready to start a study this fall. Um, with our soccer and field hockey teams looking at biomarkers uh, that are predictive of changes in performance as well. Um, I've been very lucky to work with Quest Diagnostics on a product they're calling Blueprint for Athletes, where it, it's an accessible biomarker test. So we've really tried to scale what the most critical biomarkers are. And we have the capacity in our lab to test all those things too. We do all our own assays whenever possible and, and, and whatnot. But, but again, those are the things that I've generally found to be the most useful. If I had to you know, pick the main test that we tend to rely on in the lab, VO2 max translating to either ventilatory or lactate threshold, vertical jump, wind gate, body composition. Yeah. In the field, we'll do things like the beep test or yo-yo intermittent recovery test. Uh, we can run, you know, 40 meters for time with, you know, first 20, second 20 in terms of measuring acceleration. We'll do that often as well. But, you know, those are some of them that we've incorporated as well as some agility testing 
uh, depending on the sport we're working with. Yeah, and and uh, for the listeners that don't have the luxury of video, um, I should point out that you were smiling um, he- significantly when you were talking about making people do Wingates. Um, yeah, it's a little um, sadistic. Ergo, yeah, yeah. ergo, you're a total sadist, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I work, I work with a lot of really. I mean, I'm a fairly big bloke, but I've got some really big guys. <laughs> I don't tell them they're fat, sure. They just say just a little bit <laughs> overweight, just a little bit overweight. Or I wait till they go home and then I email them. <laughs> then email, yeah, they're out of the lab. From the safety, point. yeah, yeah, these huge rugby guys. So, look, I love it, and that's that is the ethos that I practice from. And uh, I'm doing a paper now, actually, on the importance of um, testing uh, for um, all these reasons and. Um, and particularly what I mentioned before, the observation that um, it helps with buy-in, particularly with interventions that require compliance, like nutrition in particular. Um, so I was pleased that you mentioned um, sort, of a, a, a sort of a combination of, of tests that gives you some important data, uh, like metabolic testing, something that I do every day. And, and sometimes people find it hard to get their head, their head around that. They're saying, you know... If, if I'm a strength and power athlete, why do I need to know, you know, what my VO2, not, I don't necessarily do VO2 maxes all the time, but I will do a variety of tests where we achieve peak VO2. And like you say, uh, I also often will test lactate um, because um, ultimately you never really achieve your peak uh, VO2 um, because your lactate is going to be your your bigger limiting factor. And, and for me, my interests are how does nutrition influence that situation, sure. which is a right. whole nother conversation. Um, but let's just quickly talk about strength and power athletes, something that you work a lot with. The value of metabolic testing, um, I know you've mentioned a few bits there, but, but let's just quickly go into that because that is something that people avoid. Uh, they just don't see the need for it. Like a lot of rugby teams that I work with, I've told them, look, let's get the lads in, let's do some VO2 Test. Like, but I don't need to do that. They're not. They're not endurance athletes. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think what it comes down to is it, it doesn't mean that it's not an important part of their physiology. And as a matter of fact, you know, there's another way of looking at this too, which is if you get these strength and power athletes who, and this is why I believe in a combination of tests. If I'm doing, say, vertical jump and Wingate and some of those, and I find that, wow, you know you're kind of below the team average or you're below what our international averages are for your sport, what's going on. And then we do a VO2 max test and we realize, wow, you're incredibly aerobically fit though. And a lot of times you kind of look and go, um, what are you doing for training? And you realize that in some cases, one of the benefits to doing metabolic testing in some of these strength and power athletes is honestly to find a way to maintain their VO2 while you're improving these other factors. You know, so in other words, you don't, and we do know that, that aerobic capacity does translate to recovery between sets, recovery between efforts and intervals. Does it mean that I want a strength and power athlete that's got a VO2 max in the high 40s and even the 50s? Not necessarily, but it does give me a benchmark yeah. so that I know if I'm trading energy systems, you know, and, yeah. and I think, I'll give a perfect example of this actually. So one of the things that, that I found to be, one of the most interesting responses we had when we started working with women's soccer here, when we brought them into the lab for testing from a VO two max standpoint, they were around average or slightly above average for female soccer players at this level. So 
not bad, but they were below average in vertical jump. And when we looked at that, one of the reasons I started working with them is because of the number of ACL injuries they'd had. So we started doing our testing and we're looking and we realized that they're very deficient in power. And it's the one area where we could really make a big impact where they are average or below average that we need to bring up to above average. So what we did is we designed a program with maintenance of VO2 max in mind while improving power. And it was remarkable because you often hear there's a trade-off, right? Well, if you train for strength and power, you trade the endurance side. We were able to maintain endurance while building. Actually, their, their vertical jump went up uh, almost five and a half, six centimeters. So two full inches um, over the course of four months which in an already developed athlete at a division one college soccer program is pretty damn good in a short period of time. But we're able to do that without trading anything else. And as a matter of fact, what we found instead is that we actually increased ventilatory threshold. So we improved their efficiency. We maintained their kind of top aerobic capacity, but we improved power and we improved their ability to buffer the response during training. So to me, that was a win-win. You know, so I think that's one of the reasons why having metabolic testing, even in some of these athletes, is important. Now, that being said, if I'm working with a strength and power athlete and have very limited time or resources, if I'm working with like an American football team, am I going to VO2 max test every player? No, I don't necessarily care what it's like for, for example, the linemen, but for like a linebacker. And I know for some in the UK, they're going, what are these positions? But, but you know, with like defensive backs, wide receivers, things like that, it's a useful test because they they'll run 30, 40, 50 yards in a play and have to get back and within 30, 40 seconds, redo it again. Hmm. You know, so I think that in that case, those are, those are useful tests and, and they're things that I would incorporate into what we do. It's just an issue of what you prioritize. Yeah. And I, you know, again, there's a whole nother can of worms there and, you know, uh, uh, and thinking of the education you get in strength and conditioning. Yeah. One area that you get into a lot is periodization. And uh, we've talked a lot about nutritional periodization um, on this uh, on this podcast. But um, actually, I've got a colleague of mine from Middlesex University, uh, Anthony Turner, is going to uh, he's published a lot in Journal of Strength and Conditioning. Um, we're going to get into periodization, so I, I won't really spend some time on that. Um, but uh, as you were giving us some some really great examples there, which are just rarely talked about for strength and power athletes, um, I've been working a lot with. Um, Strength and, power, strength and power athletes, but I also have uh, some endurance athletes, like triathletes, for example. Um, and, and some of those guys, they sort of go the other way. It's all about endurance and not enough strength and conditioning. So where I've found metabolic testing has been useful is um, often um, getting them to even work with a strength and conditioning coach is, is pretty damn difficult because they are thinking the minute they start lifting something heavy, they're going to start you know, getting big and bulky, uh, and, um, and it's going to have a major impact, negative impact on their performance. But of course, if we're also doing metabolic testing, we can show that they're not losing, um, their metabolic fitness. And I think without that tool, it's very difficult to, again, it brings me back to that buy-in. It's, it's how do you keep their trust? But I think fundamentally, how the hell do we know that it's actually working? We, we, we don't want to wait an entire season Agreed. to discover that by the end of the season, uh, I should have done it a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that to me is where, you know, even in season. So, for example, a challenge for us is time. And, and not from the standpoint of that we don't have time to do it. It's the time the athlete has. So 
you know, again, using soccer as a good example, just we've been working with them for so many years now. We've we've dealt with all the ins and outs in terms of scheduling. And it's, I would probably say, fairly impossible to get them back into the lab for a full battery of tests again in season. It, it's just they don't have the time because they still need their recovery days. They're playing two games a week. When are we going to get them in to run these relatively fatiguing tests? So coaches kind of balk at that, like, ah, oh, but I need them on the field. And, you know, and, and one of the downsides with lab testing is you can run one athlete at a time, you know, basically. And so if you have a team of 30, uh, you know, it's a process. We can get that done in roughly two days, one if we really scramble, but, you know, it's hard. But one of the things that we'll do in season then is we try to find field tests that are comparable, that they can do right there and then bridge right into training. You know, it's easy to do vertical jump on the field. We can bring our just jump matter or vertex out. You can run through a whole team, as, you know, right after their warm up without much of a problem. So there's your maintenance of power issue, and you can assess this on regular intervals. And we can run, you know, if you're working with power endurance athletes, you can run the yo-yo test. You know, we can do we can do a beep test on the field. It correlates with VO2, but if nothing else, if we had done it at other points in the year, it at least gives us a performance tracker. And then the third component, you know, that I mentioned earlier is the use of technology for monitoring training load. You know, so now if we're using heart rate monitors and we're seeing how they're responding to training, we're seeing what they're getting up to in terms of maximal values during a game and, and, and what their recovery intervals look like. There's a lot of data that we can take from that as well that we can actually statistically analyze to see who's changing in what directions. And actually, you know, one of the big upsides we've had now by doing this for years with teams is we actually have benchmarks for their training load, not just an average, but what our team's training loads have been, and we've been able to correlate that to the changes that we see in performance as well as injury. So now we know what our high and low values are to maintain fitness in season. Over that, we tend to see more injuries and we actually see a decrease in fitness because of overreaching. Below that, we see under training. So now we've actually developed our own training zone. So here's your evidence-informed practice, right? We've developed what works with our team based on their typical workload in a week and over the course of a season to actually establish what we should be targeting from day to day on high days versus low days. And this helps us from a cumulative standpoint to, to preserve as much as we possibly can. And, and ideally, you're in a situation where you're then working with the strength and conditioning coach to make sure they're doing their job in the weight room to maintain as much muscle mass and power as they can while these athletes are playing in season. And it doesn't take a lot to do that. If I can get them in the weight room even one day per week in season and the, and the strength coach is good, they should be able to hold for those three, four, even going into five months, they should be able to hold most of what they built in the off season. But it's also the reason why I'm a firm believer that champions are built in the off season. Because if these athletes wait until preseason to get ready, they missed a prime window to be as fit as possible coming in. Because I'll tell you what, if you take these athletes – who are more and more and more fit from season to season to season, even if they deteriorate a little in season, they're still going to be above everybody else yeah. because they yeah. came in ready to go. And I think that's probably been one of the most critical messages we've been able to get across to some of our players is do your homework in the off season, your in season gets significantly easier. And I'll tell you what, if they come in ready, it's also a lot easier for a coach to give them more recovery days because they accomplish more in a shorter period of time because their fitness is up to par with what the demands are. So now you can afford to give them an extra day off here and there to even enhance recovery, especially as we're going towards tournament time. 
all those things play a part and it does make it a lot easier to sell that whole package when they see what the results are on the field. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yet again, loads of great caveats there. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I guess as much as we like to get into the rocket science, use the, the, the yeah. gadgets and gizmos that we have available, we also need to step back as well and recognize that athletes are, are human beings and, and there's more to them than, yes. than just all this, you know, which is why I agree with you completely. A lot of this stuff needs to be done in the, in the off-season um, because um, they, need, they need to get their head around what they've got to do. They need to get used to what they're doing. Uh, and, of course, there's, some, there's, a physi- there's physiological logic behind that. It takes a while to adapt, you know. Um, but absolutely, as you have mentioned, we, you know, when we're talking about testing, we're not just talking about expensive tests. Um, you mentioned field testing, and even even for the for the for, for the listeners who are not necessarily um, ha- who haven't necessarily got access to um, a proper human performance lab. Although I should say, uh, I, I know for a fact in the US and in the UK, a hell of a lot of universities have human performance labs, which are also open to the public. You can get tested, um, but you know, personal trainers um, and individual coaches like triathlon coaches, that sort of thing should not ignore the availability of these things. Um, okay. Obviously, plugging my own Guru Performance Lab naturally, <laughs> uh, in London um, um, and you guys at Rutgers, of course. But, but f- let's just focus a bit more on field testing. Yeah. Let's take it slightly away from the elite sports scenario and just quickly talk about certainly strength and conditioning environment, but more the personal training situation. What sort yeah. of tests um, do you think we should be doing and I mean the first thing that comes to mind for me of course is body composition and yeah. I know there's some performance stuff but, but maybe we should outline what, what maybe PTs and S&C coaches in a in a more one-on-one situation might be looking to do. I think the first question is of course you got to know who you're working with so if you're talking more on, on the on the strength and conditioning side obviously you're still working with athletes at some level they could be kids you know, yeah. we can do you know some great you know field testing even with kids. Recreational athletes. That's the yeah. So I love yeah, and if you're yeah. on the recreational side, you know, obviously, because when you start dealing with the PTs, you know, from the personal training standpoint, you'd be talking about somebody who's just interested in losing weight. They've got cardiovascular problems, whatever it is. So, so I think identifying what their specific needs are, so you're not just taking a one size fits all approach to testing, becomes very very useful. But, you know, you take, for example, let's say you don't have access to a human performance lab where somebody has a metabolic cart and things like that. Look, we've already said you can run an entire team doing the yo-yo test or beep test. All right. So there's there's an endurance uh, an endurance test. If you're a personal trainer, you at least have access to a treadmill with an incline. You can run a Bruce protocol without a metabolic cart because you, there's actually um, formulas to estimate, at the very least, VO2 max. You can do a submax test on a bike or a treadmill. But again, there's education that goes with that. You need to know how to run those tests appropriately, too. Um, vertical jump is very easy to do. You know, a Vertec in and of itself is not cheap. You can also put a marker on a wall and use a measure that way. So there's a lot of really cheap, like, homebrew kind of ways to do these things that still are valid and can be very reliable tests. Um, I agree with you, body composition, absolutely, because I think there's just so much information that can be gained from that, from, you know, how much fat can you afford to lose? Should you be losing any more fat? Are you at sort of an ideal weight for that? 
And, and what's your muscle mass doing as you're modifying these programs? As a strength and conditioning coach, that's vital information. You know, you, you I mean, are, is what you're doing working? And then, of course, you have the things that, you know, the most basic of things, squats, deadlifts, bench press, you know, some of your Olympic lifts. These are all testable as well. You know, one thing I would say for a lot of personal trainers and strength coaches is we get very caught up in the one rep max test for a lot of the strength stuff. If you're working with somebody that is not a highly experienced lifter, I have no problem with doing a multi-rep max test, you know, a five or even eight rep max test. There was a study we had done a number of years ago with Special Olympics athletes, and they were all athletes with Down syndrome. And we were able to safely and successfully do eight rep max testing with them, you know, even given that they have joint laxity and things like that. When you start to increase the number of repetitions, you're still measuring strength at five, six, seven, eight reps. That's still strength. You know, but you don't have to go with this all out one rep max effort because if, if anybody that's done research, if you take untrained individuals and you try to do a one RM test with them, they don't do it right. They don't, they, they, they can't maximize muscle output yet. And from a safety standpoint, I worry about it. Five, six, seven reps, not a problem. You know, so I think it's, it's being smart, knowing who you're working with, but with these recreational athletes, absolutely. You can do a treadmill test. You can do these field-based aerobic tests. I'm not usually a fan of like these, you know, the one mile runs or the 12 minute run or anything like that. I think there's better objective tests that we can use. Um, but, but again, you have access to a lot. And I think it's knowing what your resources and facilities look like so that you pick what you can do successfully. And I think what, what people have to realize, and you hit on this earlier, and I couldn't agree more. It's not about the one-time assessment. It's about what changes from time one to time two and time two to time three and time three to time four. I think it's the repeated assessments that really allow you to gauge what you're doing and whether it's successful and what you might need to modify. So I think the most important part when you pick these field tests is something that you can do the same way the next time you do it. You know, don't use skin folds for one body comp test and then a bod pod for another one and then just girth measurements for another one. Be consistent in how you apply it. And I think when you do that, um, you know, you're still using good science to do it. You don't have to have, you know, a lab that has $200,000 worth of equipment in it. You have access to the things that are, that are needed that you can do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying that, um, one thing I thought that a lot of, particularly PTs, um, and I mean those that, that, you know, they've worked hard to get their certifications, but they haven't spent as much time learning about some of this stuff by virtue of the type of certification. They haven't necessarily attended university and understood something that I think we should spend a few seconds on, and that is how unreliable some of these tests can be. Um, and, and as much as it looks like rocket science, as, as cool as it might be, like, and like, like even DEXA, if you don't prepare for a DEXA assessment, if you not appropriately hydrated is not going to be accurate, but people take it for granted. It, you print out the, you, this report and you assume that that's a fact. And of course, that also brings us back to your other point is, is you need to understand where the stuff's going to be applied, how to actually use this information to understand how relevant this is and whether or not it's a false positive and, and all that stuff. But I guess, I guess the one area that's particularly common is body composition. And there's a lot of ways of doing it Stand, yeah. you know uh, uh skinfold testing uh bioimpedance bod pod dexa 
um, and that's just some of the of the ones that we know. Maybe maybe you could uh, just give us your your view on on those various methodologies, and and maybe we'll we'll see uh, the appropriateness of some of those for elite sport, but also in in the personal training setting. Yeah, um, I think if, if we start at the kind of the higher level. You know, you hit on something very interesting about DEXA, and people just assume, well, you had DEXA done, so that's that's the standard. The problem is, you know, and I'm, I'm very lucky with some of the researchers I work here at, at Rutgers, and actually our department chair at the moment, um, she's uh, incredibly well-known for her bone research. And she'd be the first one to tell you, you know, it's not that hard to kind of fudge um, DEXA results. You know, it, just, just because you did it doesn't mean that it's right. And, you know, we've seen some studies that have come out where – you get these amazing DEXA results. We did DEXA. Yeah, I know we had these awesome results, but we did DEXA, so it must be right. Man, hydration can very easily influence that like anything else. Now, that doesn't mean that DEXA done right isn't still our gold standard. The caveat is that done right. That includes the BOD pod as well. We use the BOD pod in our lab. There's there's interesting rules and regulations in New Jersey uh, and a number of states you know, in the U.S. about who can run a DEXA. Yeah, we have a um, in the U.K., yeah. yeah. When I was in grad school at Arizona State, we could run all our own DEXA work. In New Jersey, we have to have a radiologist read the work. So the cost goes up exponentially because now you're paying for somebody else's time and availability becomes an issue. So so we rely very heavily on our bod pod. And I have not had any complaints about it. And I, I, I use the same thing with the New Jersey Devils. We use a bod pod with them as well. Um and actually, if you do it right and you make sure they haven't been active for hours before, that they're, you know, at least in an unfed state for at least the last two to three hours, you know, you follow the proper procedures in terms of clothing, we've had incredibly consistent results. And I think that's what people have to understand is, you know, and the thing I explained to my students, and I know you guys have had on this before, is the difference with validity and reliability. Validity is, is it measuring what you think it's measuring? And reliability is, and can you do it over and over and over and get the same result? You know, and I think something cannot be valid if it's not reliable. Bottom line, you know, you can't have a valid test if you can't reproduce it. So for me, whether there's a plus or minus error with the BOD pod compared to the DEXA, it's all relative because let's face it, unless you do an autopsy, you don't know what the actual body fat is anyway. You're, you're estimating it with either method. The one method that we stay away from quite a bit unless we're doing a very large population-based study is bioelectrical impedance. Mm -hmm. I just think there's too many errors with it. I think when people rely on the on the BIA scales that they stand on, you're really only measuring lower body conductance. You're not getting the reactance uh, values to actually plug into the formula yourself. I, I have a problem with that. Um, you know, and I've seen personal trainers at gyms here who use BIA and you know, they don't even know necessarily why this is happening, but they'll have somebody do BIA before they work out and after. And they're like, look, you lost 2% body fat. <laughs> no, you idiot. You just, you just shifted cellular fluid. Like yeah. that's not, you know, they're like, see, my methods are working. Yeah. And, you know, I just, you know, it's like palm to face, right? You're just like, really? I can't believe I just saw that. But, you know, BIA is very easily influenced. I, I got to be honest, you know, and, and I know when I started in grad school in particular, um, if you're well-trained on doing skin folds, in other words, you've done hundreds of them, and you're very meticulous about identifying landmarks in terms of anatomical landmarks and whatnot, I think you can be very, very accurate with skin fold. Um, you just need to use the right formula. You know, and, and the one thing I teach my students in the testing and prescription class that I, that I teach is 
you need to know ahead of time which formula you're going to use because you need to make sure that you use A, their landmarks, and B, their pinch direction in terms of the way the skin fold lies. You need to know exactly what you're testing ahead of time. But I think that, you know, in larger groups, if, if you don't have a bod pod or you don't have a DEXA, does that mean you can't do body comp? No. Honestly, though, I would rely on skin folds and you just need a lot of practice in it. Yeah. You know, but I don't have a problem with that. You know, that to me, I would use that over BIA personally, yeah. you know, especially yeah. if I, and, and if nothing else, as long as you have the same person doing it, you know, so you have the same tester from pre to post and things like that. Yeah. I, I think you can really increase, um, uh, your confidence in that test. And again, like I said, it's all about the relative changes, not whether the number is, Hey, you know, you, it says 17%, but you're really 19. Yeah. Who cares as long as you do it the same way the next time because now yeah. any change from 17 to 15 is still a relative 2% change. So yeah. to me, yeah. I think that's what it comes down to more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do, you know, as I mentioned, we, we have access at Group Performance to a DEXA, uh, um, but we our primary method of body comping people is uh, we use the Isaac method. Okay. Um, so we, we're landmarking uh, everybody to a strict protocol uh, we're measuring bone breadths, girths, precise yeah. skin fold measurements to the to the level of, you know, the training for that involves learning, you know, how long you hold the pinch for, the method of pinch, and so on. But if, if that's an example of what I would say does make skin fold testing valid, and it is um, reproducible, um, right. and then periodically, maybe every three months, we'll do a DEXA on certain people, and I find that it's very consistent if done properly. Um, the thing I've got a problem with is the percentage and yeah. what happens, uh, so I, prefer, I, I like to go by sum of skin folds, you know, if that number goes down, you've lost body fat and blah, blah, blah. Problem with the percentage is someone's like, they're all about the percentage. So you measure by skin fold, like you say, there's different formulas. You get a number, you yeah. use DEXA, you get a percentage, you use bod pod, you get a percentage. Now to everyone that percentage is a familiar thing. It's a number with a percentage. They assume that that's all the same thing. However, what they really should be doing is the number, the percentage, and then in brackets, how it was tested, DEX or whatever, because they are completely different numbers. Yeah. Yeah, and they can be. And I think um, the, the one thing that we've generally found is when we do, at least the numbers we've been getting by BodPod or DEXA here at Rutgers, have actually been remarkably similar. You know, we don't get like, you know, we're not off by like say three or 4%, but, right. but I agree with you where, you know, what I'll often talk about, you know, with athletes or even, you know, people in our studies, look, if I'm doing a study and I need to report, you know, precision, confidence intervals and things like that, like the number matters. In other words, we'll report percentage and it's say 17.2% average, whatever. Okay. When I'm working with an athlete though, what I'll usually talk to them about is what their number is, but what that means within a range. So in other words, look, Here's, here's what we consider optimal ranges for you. So is 16 different than 18? Well, yeah, by definition it is, but realistically is it? Not really. You know, I mean, it's here's where it puts you in terms of lean, you know, average, above average, overweight, you know, things like, so we talk about it in the context of what it means because the other part of the equation that I think often gets lost a little bit is let's say you come back with a number for, you know, whether it's even some of skin folds. And you know the athlete needs to lose some body fat to be at their optimum. Okay, so in other words, you know it's kind of one of those things. Like I, I use it to describe to them that hey, if you're if you're carrying ten extra pounds of body fat that you really don't need, 
can you imagine running down the field with a 10 pound backpack on? Like, what's that going to do to slow you down? And, and I worry about it more from an injury standpoint. You know, you get these players that are carrying extra body fat and they land and cut that's extra weight being absorbed by their joints that they have to now carry in a different direction. It's more that issue. But the one thing I always educate them on is I go, okay, look, let's say, let's say we had a female athlete who was say 25% body fat and it's a soccer player. We know ideally somewhere in that 16, 17, 18 range is more consistent with international level players in terms of their leanness and things. So, so how do we get them there? The one thing I don't do is just give them their numbers and be like, well, you know, we got to get you from this to this. So, you know, here's what we're going to do to change your diet. It's funny, especially working with female athletes, we might do a test and they go, oh my God, so what I need to lose like what, like 12 pounds. And you go, hold on, let's sit down. So you do the math because of their size and you go five, you need to lose five pounds. Like that's how big of a difference you can make in percentage. So, and they're like, oh, so I don't have to starve myself. No, please don't, please don't starve yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's a great educational opportunity to teach them what it means, you know, and how to put it in context. Um, and like I said, we try to frame it in terms of ranges. So you're within this range. That's great. You're within this range. Nah, let's try to bring you down to this one and here's how we'll do it. You know, and, and I think that when you do it in that context, I think, um, you do a lot less mental damage and emotional damage when they don't really know what it means. It gives you a chance to really um, work with them from that standpoint. And again, it goes back to our points about communication. Absolutely. You know, how do you, how do you report the data to them so that it actually means something versus, well, you know, VO2 max is a perfect example, right? It's like you went from 46 to 48. Oh, that's great. What does two points mean? Not much. It really doesn't. That's 10. Yeah, that's about two. It's uh, two milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute. Not a big difference. You did good. You pretty much maintained it, you know, and, and I, so I think it's little things like that that, that help us in what we do. Yeah, no, the, the, yeah, no, good stuff. Um, and again, because we're not recording video, the, uh, the viewers uh, missed out on, uh, in your uh, female client role play there, the, uh, the camp expressions on your face when you were <laughs> recounting the, the female comments. Absolutely brilliant stuff. We need to get you on stage, Sean. I think, there's some, uh, I, think, I think there's some benefits there. Well, we must get you over to the UK, actually. We're going to do yes. an ISSN uh, conference in London next year. Big one, you know, like a three-day sort of event. Um, That's awesome. But also, um, uh, if I was a radio show sort of host, uh, there would have been bells and whistles going off because you mentioned context quite a few times, and that's my uh, buzzword throughout these podcasts. But I haven't actually mentioned it at all um, on this uh, on this podcast. So um, uh, I thank you for that. Um, yeah, we, we, absolutely. Anyway, um, listen, we're we're out of time. Um, yeah. I think we'll have to get you back on and talk about uh, some other topics. I'd love to get more into the uh, exercise endocrinology stuff. Um, yeah, especially the stress work we've done. I think you'd be yeah. interested in We do a lot with cortisol and inflammation in particular. Yeah, no, I'd be very, very interested in that. Um, so anyway, Sean, I'd, I'd very much like to thank you for your time. Um, it's been fascinating. I know the listeners are going to – there's loads – in that, it's uh, going to be well worth a listen. Um, briefly, uh, how do people find out more about uh, you and what you're up to? Um, do you have a website, that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, so um, we have a Facebook page for the Center for Health and Human Performance at Rutgers. They can look that up. Um, they can look me up on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Twitter, I'm on Twitter, at Sean Art. Uh, pretty straightforward. Um, they can easily find me through Rutgers. Uh, if they just look up our exercise science website, um, I'm listed there. And uh you know, alphabetically, I come pretty early <laughs> because 
<laughs> always works that way. It's funny. Um, but anyway, you know, people are welcome to reach out to me. Um, you know, like you said, you know, we do some outreach testing in our lab. Most of our labs dedicated to research, uh, and even the teams we work with, it's research based because we are developing, you know, databases that we're using for predictive norms and things. But you know, we'll do some community testing for people that are really interested in the science behind their training. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, to, as as kind of a parting thought on that, you know, I was very lucky because my master's work in particular was very oriented in sports psychology, which then drove me to the neuroendocrine side. Um, you, you really have to understand the psychology of an athlete for any of this to work because you have to appreciate how they're going to take it, how they're going to process it, and all the other stressors that they go with. And the next time we talk about endocrinology, we can talk about that cumulative psychological and physiological stress that you have to deal with with athletes. Definitely. I can't wait. <laughs> I, I yeah. can't wait. I mean, not everyone is as enthusiastic about this stuff as we are, you know. So, I know, you know, it's true. You know, but I, I love it so much. So, no, so do I, and so do our listeners. Uh, so th thanks again, Sean. It's been, it's been fantastic. Uh, so that brings us to the end, uh, episode 58 of um, this podcast. I'll think of a title, uh, but it'll be something along the lines of testing for an evidence-informed practice. Um, I'd like to say... Um, that we've mentioned this business of getting testing done. Um, I would recommend you check out your local sports science laboratories. Um, there's a number of uh, private labs that do performance testing. And of course, if you're anywhere near London, you've got to come check out the uh, Guru Performance Lab. Um, we are thinking about opening some other ones in other countries, but uh, right now it's in London guruperformance.com, just check under consulting. Um, you can learn more about all this stuff on the ISSN diploma, of course, and or at your local university in your undergraduate and graduate programs in sports science. Um, and uh, of course, that's issndiploma.com. Um, I'd like to say thank you to um, our sponsors, uh, Healthspan Elite, and you can learn more about um, Healthspan Elite and their range of informed, informed sport accredited vitamins and mineral supplements, which is at uh, www.healthspanelite.co.uk. I, of course, am Laurent Bannock, um, and I look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon. Bye-bye for now.